morning, all. Um, my name is Mike Lehman. I'm one of the pediatric anesthesiologists here, if you guys haven't met me. Uh, I was asked to do grand rounds, and um, I started thinking what topic would be of interest to the department at large. Certainly, there's stuff that's interesting to me that's interesting to nobody else. So I started asking some of my colleagues, and I said, what would you like me to talk about for grand rounds? And they said, you? Nothing. You're full of crap. <laughs> and uh, I started thinking maybe they were full of crap, too. And then I started thinking, maybe we're all full of crap. And then I started reading some books, some major textbooks of anesthesia. And it turns out a lot of the stuff that we do and that we propagate are actually myths, right, that are unfounded by good science and good practice. So um, I'm hoping today to uh, parse out a couple of these uh, myths from facts. Um, in, in my journey of self-discovery, I have found that uh, we're all guilty of a little bit of anesthetic wizardry, of uh, taking things that, uh, and passing them off as hardcore science and good practice that are not well-founded in the literature or in the major textbooks that we use. Uh, unfortunately, to my dismay, I found out that I am more full of crap than most people. So um, this will be, be fun for everyone. Fact or myth, evaporation in the respiratory tract is a major cause of heat loss in the anesthetized patient. What do you guys think? I want to keep it fast today. Yeah. It's a myth. Yeah, everyone's so obsessed with those artificial noses, right? Little heat is lost through respiration and even active airway heating. And the noses we use are passive airway heaters, which are at best half as good as an active airway heater. Uh, minimally influence core temperature, straight out of the new Miller. So, uh, the, oh, I like this too. The apparent clinical efficacy of these devices probably results from artifactual warming of proximally positioned esophageal stethoscopes. So those things are not going to save the day. Brachial arterial lines are dangerous and should be avoided. Total myth. We are terrified of these things, right? This is, again, straight out of the, the sixth edition of Miller. More than 3,000 brachial artery catheters, no one towards sequelae, one thrombectomy. Pretty good for 3,000 arterial catheters. These are in bypass patients, by the way. Um, and that's at uh, University of Texas. Um, so uh, I've seen people do desperate, desperate things for arterial lines. I think we're avoiding uh, you know, some low-hanging fruit up in the crook of the arm. Fact or myth? Nasopharyngeal temperature monitoring is a good measure of core temperature. This one's true. Yeah. I define good by what comes out of the 40th chapter of the new edition of the Miller textbook. Core temperature monitoring sites include the pulmonary artery, tympatic membrane with a thermocoupler, the distal end of the esophagus, and nasopharynx. Intermediate sites include the axilla, mouth, and bladder. Rectal and skin temperatures may fail to track core temperature. Go figure. Well, that depends on what you mean by core temperature. Fair enough. I mean, because the esophagus is going to give you esophageal temperature, and you hope it's going to reflect the heart temperature, blood in. Not temperature is going to give you urine temperature, which you hope will track abdominal temperature. If you're interested in brain temperature, you should be sticking a probe down the ear. So it depends on what you want to track, and it depends on how you define them all. Fair enough. In fact, maybe we should be looking at skin temperatures in some instances. Uh, 
depending on the case, it may be appropriate to monitor two temperatures and take a look at core and peripheral temperatures. Fact or myth on the machines, fail-safe valves and proportioning systems prevent delivery of hypoxic gas mixtures. Oh, big myth, big myth. Fail-safe valves, and the reason we don't call them fail-safe valves anymore is because there's an association in the human mind between fail-safe and foolproof. And uh, that is not accurate. Okay, um, these valves can very much deliver a hypoxic gas mixture. Keep in mind what a fail-safe valve and a proportioning system does. These are the old nitrous cutoff valves, right? So uh, they, they fail to deliver, uh, they cut off gas flows of all gases in our anesthesia machine except for oxygen when oxygen pressure falls below a certain threshold. Uh, these, um, you have to keep in mind, there's a lot of situations where pressure in your anesthesia machine can be maintained, and these proportioning systems or uh, fail-safe valves are not actuated, and uh, flow can be, uh, you know, can be, can, can be hypoxic at that point. The fail-safe valve in the proportioning system will do nothing to prevent uh, gas line mixture. They'll do nothing to prevent uh, over-vaporization of a wrong agent in wrong vaporizer. Um, and uh, and inner gas administration. Our last line of defense, besides for always, of course, the vigilant anesthesiologist, is inline oxygen monitoring, which takes place in our anesthesia machines, all of them, before the uh, inspiratory limb takeoff. Fact or myth, it is safe to depress the oxygen flush button when a patient is connected to the breathing circuit. This one kills me, everybody. It's apparently not so dangerous after all. Um, yeah, this hurts. Uh, this is a myth that I am more guilty of propagating than maybe any other member of the department. Um, straight out of Chapter 9 of the 6th edition of Miller, the Draeger Primus, which is the, other, uh, which is the international name for our Apollo machines, uh, use something called FGD technology, fresh gas decoupling. What it does is it sends all of uh, your flush into the reservoir bag instead of towards the patient. It uses the reservoir bag, even on ventilator mode, as, uh, as a um, reservoir because it doesn't have a reservoir inside of the bellows because it uses a piston drive, right? So quoted out of the new Miller, New ventilators that use FGD technology virtually eliminate the possibility of barotrauma by oxygen flushing during the inspiratory phase. So go to town, everybody. Enjoy. <laughs> um, and then uh, a note from our Estiva machine and the new Daytex Omeda machines is uh, they have an adjustable pressure limiter built into the gas delivery side of the anesthesia machine that uh, acts as an APL valve for the vent and limits the maximum airway pressure to what they term as a safe level, thereby reducing the possibility of barotrauma. These uh, devices are not foolproof. If they are malfunctioning, they can deliver potentially high um, gas flows to the patient. 
But uh, as it turns out, the danger of this particular maneuver has been wildly overstated by me. <laughs> On the previous back of myth, when you talked about delivering hypothetical mixtures, you said it was a myth because it's theoretically possible. On the next slide, you said that it's still theoretically, it's theoretically possible for there to be very common to minimize it, and you said it's a fact. So, <laughs> you still understand the uh, dilemma I have? Yeah, I kind of do. <laughs> I mean, well, just, you're going to say that something's possible, and then you're going to say it's a factor of myth based on that, and you have to, you should be consistent with it. I am wildly inconsistent in my practice. I'm going to be honest with you. <coughs> but, Joe, the point on the second one, if you don't get the DPS out of the common guest out, but you're not currently It's true. And also that I have railed against, you know, unfortunate residents, people who I am committed to educating. And um, as it turns out, they were in the right. It doesn't look pretty when they do it, but How it's not. It's not so. They warn that the, obviously the pediatric patient is more prone to barotrauma with one of these malfunctioning. If if there were to be a device malfunction, and you know these, uh, and the patient were to be exposed to high gas flow from the flush button. 35 to 75 liters per minute flow, but uh, when these devices are working properly, it should be uh, very difficult, actually, to, uh, to, to, to harm patients. I looked on the web pages of these machines. I was desperate to prove this one was, uh, was not the case. I looked on, um, I looked on Dragovirk's homepage. I looked on Datex Omega and G Healthcare's uh, machine, machine information. And they say, you know, with the proviso that these things should be used with, uh, with care and caution, that this technology does, uh, does make it safe, even for the little ones, unfortunately. But going back to that, yeah. our residents will go out in private practice somewhere. Where yep. Machines may not be, the technology may That's be. true. I don't know. So which machines can you do this on? Um, the Datex Omeda machines became safe at the Modulus 2 SE. In machine iteration, okay? If you find yourself in using an Excel 110 machine, an Excel 210 machine, or a Modulus 2 original edition, you can, uh, you can expose a patient to barotrauma by depressing the oxygen flush button. Uh, any of the Narcomed 2 series would, all, would be similarly dangerous. So the machines that we have in clinical practice at our hospital, as long as we'll run down a machine site-by-site -site checklist, you can do this on any of our Apollo machines. You can do this on the Fabius GS Tyro transport machine. You can do this on our Steva 5s and our uh, Datex Omeda uh, S5 ADUs. You can do this on the two machines we have in MRI. One on the inside is an Esteva. The one on the outside is a Modulus 2 SE. If you were to see one of our old Narcomed 2s for transport or the one Modulus 2 model that we have in our hospital, I wouldn't press the oxygen flush button on that machine. Sounds good? Yeah, just, just to follow up on Joe's point a little bit, I, I think that the message also is this is true in terms of barotrauma, but you would not want to maintain sustained high, high airway pressures for any length of time uh, because of you know, the, the uh, physiologic effects on venous retention. So, so we're not saying you just keep the finger on the button and you continue to do it. That, that, while it may not result in barotrauma, it will almost certainly result in uh, 
You actually won't transmit those pressures to the patient. The biggest warning you'll get in the Miller textbook about this issue is uh, that it can dilute your uh, inspired gas concentrations down to subhypnotic concentrations and introduce the possibility of awareness. Question on that. What if you, uh, how well will the valve, the pressure valve in the system, detect baritone in the older systems if you're flushing the valve? If you watch that valve, will it change? The manometer? Yeah. Oh, no. It's, uh, not, you know, it just goes. Um, presumably, you're, uh, you're, you know, the, the board, will the Bordine pressure gauge, the, the inline manometer, uh, protect you against barotrauma? Will the pressure go up as you're depressing the valve and transmitting high pressure to the patient? Sure, like you're jet ventilating a patient. Why not? Factor myth. Epidural fentanyl acts on the spinal cord by diffusion through the dura mater. Myth. Chapter 72 of the New Miller, the analgesic site of action for continuous epidural infusions of lipophilic opioids is not clear, although several randomized clinical trials suggest that it is systemic. It's all based on plasma concentration. So if you're popping, uh, if you're popping fentanyl into your epidurals and into your labor epidurals, you're, generating, you're giving a very fancy uh, IV dose of drug. Uh, the analgesic site for the continuous action of of hydrophilic opioid infusions, primarily spinal. Uh, so morphine and uh, hydromorphone do diffuse to the dura mater onto the spinal cord. But the, the barrier there to, to those is, is, is actually nothing to do with the dura mater. It's the peer matter that prevents the diffusion of the fentanyl uh, and the, the other hypophobic or hypophilic drugs. I mean, the, the, the lipophilic drugs don't go through the pia the hydrophilic drugs do. It, the dura matter is relatively irrelevant. It's the pia matter that counts. Sorry, any more I know it's not scientific to ask a patient, but I've received epidural fentanyl, and I can tell you that within 10 seconds, get that warm, fuzzy, systemic, narcotized feeling. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> if you guys will keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. Of course. I hope that's an isolated observation. Of course, epidural, uh, epidural uptake of these medications is almost as fast as, uh, as intravenous. Um, Dozens of studies have shown that, you know, uh, at, equi at equipotent plasma concentrations, the, the opiate effect of uh, epidural fentanyl is, is, uh, is identical. That's huh? what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's giving you a plasma concentration, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's backed up by our books. Yes, you should yeah. change from fentanyl to morphine. <laughs> uh, quite honestly, um, I, I won't put fentanyl in uh, epidurals anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've been we knew this for a long time, but it still is, you know, it's been Yeah. 
Um, if I found myself on labor delivery at this point in my practice, knowing what I know now, <laughs> I would have a hard time giving fentanyl epidurally. You're putting fentanyl in epidurals. With, you can't do. Are you putting fentanyl in epidurals? You can't do epidural willful plus systemic fentanyl. But are you putting epidural? Are you putting fentanyl in the epidural space? You can tell me the truth. I can take it. <laughs> no. No, you're not. Well, good on you. Please. I, I agree entirely with you in terms of the factual information you provided, but the objective of obstetrics is to provide analgesia without, uh, without depression, of, uh, fetal depression. So I think, you know, how you deliver your analgesic is, is less important than achieving adequate analgesia without, without fetal depression. So, so whether, whether it's working systemically or not doesn't really matter. <coughs> I, I agree with you that this is definitely a safe practice borne out in something I've done literally hundreds of times, but I did it under, under false pretenses in my own mind. I thought in my heart of hearts that that epidural dose of fentanyl I was delivering to the patient was diffusing across their, uh, across their dura mater and acting on their spinal cord to give them analgesia sub to, you know, uh, outside of their brain case, and I was mistaken. Of 
not so much on the uh, final, on the dorsal horn. On the spores, on the exposed roots. So there is segmental. So the, the, it's true that the blood levels are high. It's not necessarily true that therefore equates that the mechanism is purely systemic. That's that's kind of a leap. It's it, it's a leap that uh, you know it's it, but uh, data certainly you know could suggest that. Yes, no, I'm not saying I'm not saying that it can't. Oh. I'm just saying that. To then say it absolutely is would be kind of a bit of a leap, given the fact that I think our clinical data, our clinical experience, at least to a certain extent, would be that it seems to be significantly different, or at least fact you're not finding it on the spinal cord though you could uh, you know you can give uh, you can give epidural fentanyl you can try you can uh, dissect the spinal cord you won't find it there a potentially MH susceptible patient must have a halothane contracture test to confirm susceptibility well, how else are we finding it these days how else are we find, how else are we uh, diagnosing a patient as susceptible these days? If a family, if somebody has a, in the family has a positive test, and they have a sibling who has an elevated CK, resting CK, then most experts would say that person is also an susceptible. We wouldn't need to do an image contraction. He's right, and in the U.S. today we have a lot of DNA testing. Um, if someone in your family is uh, positive halothane contracture tested, and their DNA mutation is identified, then any family member with the same mutation is diagnosed with uh, MH uh, susceptibility that way. In, the, in, in Europe, apparently, according to uh, MHAUS, the first line testing is still a uh, muscle biopsy. It's a little easier to do there. Um, uh, in the U.S. now, we've gone to a mostly DNA-based uh, uh, diagnosis protocol, uh, sparing a lot of uh, sparing a lot of muscle biopsies. Only a positive, uh, so um, a negative DNA test doesn't uh, can't. Uh, so a negative DNA test can't say that you are not MH susceptible, but a positive one can say that you are. The fresh gas hose must be changed to prepare a trigger-free anesthesia machine. So myth, and I used to change these hoses every time. Uh, this is straight off the uh, MHAUS website. Um, flow 10 liters per minute oxygen for at least 20 minutes, cycling the ventilator while you do it. Uh, the gas hose no longer needs to be changed. This is kind of a newer thing, by the way, as far as these, uh, these machine preparations go. To prepare our brand new fancy Draeger Apollo machines. So what do you do with this Straight from, so personally, I still like to change them. Uh, from the MHAUS website, it says, some consultants recommend changing the CO2 absorbent. So although it is no longer absolutely required uh, I think most people still do it clinically, but if you want to talk about the straight, bare-bones requirements to prepare a trigger-free machine, it, you do not have to change the absorbent canisters. 
I think most people still do it. This, this issue of trace gases has been banned about for some time. And the one thing that's important to NBA people talk about is that there has never been a report of an OR person, a person coming working in the OR, having an NBA reaction. Surely there must have been somewhere people who were OR nurses or physicians where they operate who are in susceptible. There are trace gases in this operation. And when we do these uh, recommendations here uh, in terms of just, you know, having high gas flows and high oxygen flows and allowing the aspects to wash out, we are not changing the CO2 program back. The amount of anesthetics is actually present in the system very, very well. So uh, chances are we, we most people think that it's very unlikely that we're going to trigger the body in a very, very low concentration. If I could comment on that, too, if you ever get an MH patient and you go to all the trouble of giving them no trigger, you will then put them in a place where we know there is a low level of anesthetic gas. It's not packy. So everyone in the packy is definitely breathing out um, residual whatever gas that you've given them. And um, and in the past, you there are trace anesthetic gases. And you're very happy to put your known MH susceptible patients in there. I don't think anyone's ever triggered in the past. So I think that's more evidence about the fact that you actually have to have a certain dose of trigger before an MH patient. And this is altering the machine recommendations. These recommendations have changed, and they've always changed towards the kind of scaled down approach. Uh, I haven't been doing anesthesia very long, but when I started, the recommendations were change fresh gas hose, use new absorbent canisters, and cycle the anesthesia machine for 30 minutes at high flows. And uh, these, these, um, these recommendations have been moving in the direction towards uh, more casual and less dangerous. What's up, boss? At the same time, if you take a look at some of the discussions that took place uh, related to the last two iterations, there were a lot, not a lot, but there were some case reports that also came out, uh, mostly as letters back to uh, the people on the board, uh, talking about cases gone bad, where people, in their rush to prepare the machine in the middle of the night, or whatever else left, there were cellophane wrappers on their CO2 absorbers or uh, cross-connected uh, their breathing circuits or something else like that. In other words. Uh, anesthesiologists in a hurry tend to do a pretty bad job of uh, setting up their anesthesia from scratch. Well, in, in Europe, it's gone from very strict, like every department being required to have one machine designated and no vapor and it's not exactly this. So, wow. you know, so as long as we're on the topic, how about our new machines? To prepare the Draeger Apollo for a trigger-free anesthetic, once you change your fresh CO2 absorbent and flush with 10 liters oxygen for 20 minutes. Yep, that's true. That's all you have to do for our Draeger Apollo machines. There is a faster way, this was published in anesthesiology last year, that if you replace the ventilator diaphragm and integrating breathing system, the circle, uh, with autoclaved uh, components, uh, you can do it in five minutes. Not that that becomes much of a clinical issue, but this is something that uh, they were very excited about. Here's Jackson Reese. <laughs> Fact or myth?
Patients with muscular dystrophy are more prone to MH. Ouch. I have no idea. I've looked in multiple sources and everyone says something different. Uh, so one of the major textbooks of pediatric anesthesia, the Cote in its current edition, the third edition, Duchenne type muscular dystrophy is associated with MH susceptibility. That's very simple and straightforward. Here's one from the uh, malignant hyperthermia website. The clinical event may resemble MH in many ways, but is not considered true MH. I don't know. Um, I looked at about 10 different textbooks for this one, and I got about 10 different answers. I got five on each side. I actually don't know. Um, I can tell you as a pediatric anesthesiologist, I do not do, uh, I, I do not uh, consider hard descent muscular dystrophy patients particularly MH prone to the point where I avoid succinylcholine, not for MH reasons, but for uh, hyperkalemia, and I will use volatile anesthetic on them. How about you, Dr. Klein? Hey, All right, Dr. Raj? That's the current edition, the third edition. The fourth edition is going to come out maybe in December, according to Amazon.com. The origin of this admonition is a couple of case reports that came out of Indiana many, many years ago. A couple of patients, I believe it was two, with Duchenne to develop MHX, and maybe it's only a single patient. But it's, that's, I believe that's the basis of this thing. The problem is, is, is really the early life ending events in MH is hyperkalemia, which is the same thing you see with DMD. And so trainees get confused. And if you don't do it all the time or look at it all the time, you get confused and start looking at it. But there's there's real heated discussion going on. Yes, there is. Looking at the difference between the two and that there is a crossover, but we don't quite know where that is. DMD is not really. Not really, right? Dr. Randall. I recently had a patient, and I looked at it, and Currently, it's not, you know, substantiated by science, but there's currently a symptom association of potent uh, illnesses, and they can develop rhabdo. Yes. There's no question of this, and this is actually, if you look at the quote here from uh, MHAUS, the website, in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, succinylcholine should always be avoided uh, for hyperkalemia rhabdomyolysis. Potent volatile agents may produce rhabdomyolysis in time. So there's, there's no question. Uh, and don't think that this is uh, permission to go freewheeling on your DMD patients and treat them like they're healthy kids. But uh, you know, some people will think that they're particularly MH prone. I can tell you that all of us pediatric anesthesiologists here will use volatile on them. So. Uh, but, but it gets a little dicey because now what if you have one with a 10% ejection fraction and you say, well, maybe a cardiodepressing uh, TIVA is not the best anesthetic choice for this patient. So it gets tricky, you know? We were doing line, line, a lineup of neuromuscular kids and, and we were doing them all like, you know, willy-nilly and then suddenly there was a case report or two maybe, I think, about um, a massive hyperkalemia and rhabdo um, appearing in the recovery room in this population of patients. And so someone suggested that we go to TIVA now because they need to be susceptible. But in reality, clinically what they're looking at now is just stasis. And it has to do with the profound stasis and muscle relaxation provided 
uh, with the volatiles versus total volatiles, and reducing uh, you know, wake up recruitment phenomena that fell on that. So, again, it's. We're thinking about it. Fact or myth? The LMA should be inserted deflated. That's Archie Brain. <laughs> yes, he is, actually. This is straight out of the, 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 the new Banyamoff textbook written by Dr. Hagberg. Archie Brain, MD, the inventor of the laryngeal mask airway, is about to insert one of the LMA prototypes into his anesthetized pharynx to test his hypothesis. Uh, this is off the um, LMA uh, product literature and website. Tightly deflate the cuff so that it forms a smooth spoon shape. Now, why, besides for being the inventor of the laryngeal mask, is Dr. Brain propagating this information that the LMA should be inserted deflated? Um, again, off the laryngeal mask uh, review and practical guide, incorrect mask deflation. Attempting to insert the LMA airway with the cuff partially inflated increases the chance of a downfolded epiglottis. Uh, the LMAs have obturator bars to, uh, to roll the epiglottis off of the, uh, off of the laryngeal mask aperture. You will increase the chance of downfolding the epiglottis onto the, um, over your aperture with a partially inflated LMA. This is from the second edition of Benyamoff, the current edition of Benyamoff, chapter 21. Um, full disclosure, it was authored by Archie Bray in this chapter. Uh, when variant insertion techniques are used, the failure rate is about five-fold higher than with the standard insertion technique. The risk of complications such as laryngeal or pharyngeal trauma and pulmonary aspiration probably increases even more with the failure rate when the standard insertion technique is not used. Dr. Brain is a big proponent of uh, standard insertion, fully deflated LMA placement, and allowing the laryngeal mass to form its own seal around the glottic aperture. Factor myth. The LMA can be removed inflated or deflated. This is another one that I unfortunately find myself hamstrung by. I, um, coming into uh, preparation for this Grand Rounds, uh, was a believer that the LMA should always be removed fully inflated. And uh, I am guilty of wizardry in propagating this myth onto our trainees. Straight off the LMA website, Provided the patient is awake and airway reflexes have returned, cuff deflation prior to removal is not essential. However, this one kills me. However, it is preferable to remove the LMA airway deflated to prevent damage to the cuff from sharp teeth. In some situations, clinicians prefer to remove the LMA with the cuff inflated primarily to remove secretions that collect on the top of the cuff. This is particularly true of patients undergoing nasal throat surgery where there's bleeding. So, basically, you could pull it out either way you want. And they're both, uh, they're both medically safe. Dr. Singh. Just about the insertion, did you find any, any references uh, about increased risk when you placed the inflated Increased risk of? Of all the complications. Of pharyngeal trauma, laryngeal trauma, and downfolding the epiglottis? Yeah. Uh, there. You also have to, you know, hold it like a pencil and press against the hard gently slide it. Uh, but, but everybody has improvised and you don't have to Yeah. Uh, that's not the only way to start. Because the new LMA can't be deflated, so I guess they're going to do it. The new LMA... Uh, 
can't be deflated. Yeah. So. Um, so. I mean, I've inserted them. Well, you don't have a good cohort either. That's a disgusting study, by the way. Dr. Raj, what do you got? And the uh, the pro seal still has the special deflation tool. If you if you were to get a pro seal now, they still use the special deflation tool. Whereas the standard laryngeal mask and the LMA unique, you know, the LMA classic LMA unique don't have the, you know necessarily the spoon shell anymore. Have much, you guys have much less I don't know for sure. I would assume they're sticking uh, they're sticking either a, a fast or a fiber optic bronchoscope down the LMA and looking what's on the other side. Technicians for so long, we tend to look at things based on 
our own assumptions, for instance, too much saliva, a lot of saliva is bad, versus, versus everything. Only uncuffed ET tubes should be used in children under eight. Yeah, a big myth. You you know, don't think this myth hasn't become uh, has doesn't persist in some uh, in in some places. Certainly in academic centers, this has long been dispelled. But don't think you won't go out into the community and find people who are saying, you know, only uncuffed tubes for children. Did you find any um, information as to why that practice has changed? Has been changed? Um, just basically. It's more when you look in the books about this. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of large-scale studies. There's one with well over a thousand patients that, that looked at cuff versus uncuffed, and uh, it grew out of it grew out of critical care, intensive care. But essentially, the problem is sizing the tube, and, and uh, if you use an uncuffed tube, you tend to size it. It's difficult to size it, particularly in our population of children, if we have different sizes and so forth. And so, so the uncuffed tube usually often results in more frequent laryngoscopy intubation. So, so a lot of these uh, studies are coming out of the Kinder Hospital in Geneva, Switzerland, where they're doing a lot, where they're doing a lot of research, especially on modern uh, cuff tube development. And uh, you know. It's more interestingly is kind of why some of the why some of the reasons that the that the uh, uncuffed tubes became popular in pediatrics, and they cite actually the development of pediatric anesthesia as a unique discipline. Um, basically, if you're old enough, I don't know if anyone here is, you used to have to come in in the morning and put your own cuffs, and these were the old style um, uh, high pressure, low volume cuffs. You'd have to put them on your own endotracheal tubes. And uh, it's this crazy stretching device that looked like it came out of uh, Marquis de Sade's private collection. And uh, so they found that pediatric anesthesiologists were typically very lazy and just too lazy to put them on and got away with using uncuffed tubes for the longest time. Um, factor myth. The dialed concentration of sevoflurane does not need to be adjusted when performing anesthesia at altitude. This is a tricky one. If you are in Denver... Does two per, can you put on two? Per, can you dial that thing to two and call it one Mac? No. Well, Dr. Moore says no. You say yes. No, it's a fact. It's a fact. We're saying it's a fact. Okay. You can't put it on two and pick one Mac. You can. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a Mac. It's going to be a Mac, not a Mac. Fair enough. So. At any given setting, the delivered percentage of halothane, and this extends to all the, the um, modern vaporizers except for desflurane, uh, the delivered percentage of uh, halothane increased with altitude. However, its partial pressure remained constant. Anesthetic will be delivered at constant potency regardless of altitude. If you were doing anesthesia in Denver with a Sevotex 6 vaporizer, you could, uh, you know, you, you put it on, you, you know, you can, get, you can use it as if you were down here at American River level. So what you're saying is 2% delivers more than 2% because 2% at altitude is going to be less than... It's, it's, it's the, now, Viga made a mistake of using, using terminology called MAC instead of MAC, you know, minimum alveolar partial pressure. And so I don't understand how that can be correct, you know, because 2% in, at a higher altitude will deliver less, less molecules, less concentration, and will deliver, uh, and so I don't understand. So, 
In Denver, your vaporizer output at any given dial concentration will be higher, but the effect on your patient will be the same. Well, one of the things we're so, considering here is the settings on these vaporizers, et cetera, the pressurizers, not on, on the other end of the equation, which is the patient. Once it gets into the patient, the dynamics also change too, right here. And that's, I think, what you're saying is that. The way I understand is that your vapor output is your vapor pressure divided by your barometric pressure. So when you go at a high altitude, your vapor output goes up because your vapor pressure stays the same. Well, so you get more vapor output. On the other hand, you're at a high altitude, the partial pressure that builds in your system, in your lungs and your brain, is low, so higher. So if these two things sort of offset each other. Yes. That is absolutely what uh, Chapter 70 in the sixth edition, the current edition of Miller, says. Wait a minute. I'm not quite sure I follow what you said. So let, me, let me explain the way I think it happens. Ah. <laughs> so these vaporizers, and again, uh, Michael sort of glossed over the issue that that's more different. These vaporizers will deliver a percentage of base percentage on, on sea level atmosphere. Yeah. All right. So 2% at sea level is basically about 15 millimeters of mercury. 760, all right, so 1% would be 7.6, 2% would be about 15 millimeters of mercury. When you go to Denver, you're still delivering 15 millimeters of mercury of sea quality. The partial pressure, I should say the total atmospheric pressure in Denver is lower, so the concentration that you're delivering is actually higher. But the partial pressure of the sea quality is the same. And that's what you're interested in. I, I, again, I don't understand that. But you're saying because the, so it's not, it's not actually delivering 2%, it's adjusting a higher percentage. It's, 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 it's delivering, it's delivering 15 millimeters of mercury of the point. So, Peter said, forget about the percentage if you want, because that's based on, you know, doing this at sea level. Right? It's delivering 15 millimeters of mercury of sea point. Well, and, and but that's not what we've done. Ah! No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so the point is that Aha. So 15% of, say, 560 is going to be greater than 2%. Right. So, so it's actually not the dial is the same percent, but in actual fact, it's delivering a fixed partial pressure. Correct. These are tricky things. If you're, yeah, if you're you can use you can do the same SIVA fluorine balanced anesthetic in Denver as you can in San Francisco. The desfluorine vaporizer works differently. Because it meters out pure vapor at the end of the uh, at the end of the vaporizer, it's not a variable bypass vaporizer in the traditional design sense, and it is confounded. Don't use DES in Denver. That's the takeaway message for you. It's too tricky. You would actually have to, by the way, for any given Mac, you'd have to turn up the dial for. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sorry to say? No, the, the, the output will be higher. 
You'll, you'll measure it. Remifentanil is metabolized more slowly in neonates. I just found this to be very interesting. Remifentanil is a unique potent opioid in neonates. The half-life is shorter rather than longer. When we talk about uh, neonates and preterm neonates, uh, we always think of drug metabolism as going down. Remifentanil is a very unusual drug in that the, more, the younger you are, the faster it is metabolized in your body. Even if you're premature, it's metabolized even faster than your term. It's a fascinating kind of weird pharmacokinetic thing. The goal of ulnar nerve twitch stimulation is contraction of the fourth and fifth digits. Really, because I'm in the OR every day and I see people doing it. <laughs> Big myth. The goal of ulnar nerve twitch stimulation is contraction of the adductor pollicis muscle. Right? You're not looking for direct muscle stimulation. You're looking for nerve stimulation. Question. Yeah. So when you're Median nerve stimulation is not correlated with reversal of neuromuscular blockade. We are trying to stimulate in the operating room the ulnar nerve, typically. Right? What you're, what you're doing when you put it here is you're doing the wrong thing. Okay. The movement you're... Yes, but, but there, in that article, though, which was a lead article, not a lead article, but a, a huge article in a few months back, they were looking at a practice that was commonly done, and they had noticed that it looked like there seemed to be a little less muscle vomiting, and they tried to correlate uh, that to the cease, whatever spot that is, for acupressure. And so they did find some levels of correlation with that. Yeah. But they did not say... Right. Well, they did not say that, that it was a standardized way. They were doing some wing-wang acupressure thing. The adductor pollicis muscle recovers from neuromuscular blockade after the diaphragm. That is a fact. The diaphragm, rectus abdominis, laryngeal adductor, and ambicularis oculi muscles recover from neuromuscular blockades sooner than the adductor pollicis. So it's possible to have, so is it possible to have no twitches at the hand and still have diaphragm, uh, still have uh, not total relaxation of the diaphragm? And is it possible that your diaphragm has recovered and your hand hasn't? Yes, it's, it's one of the reasons why the ulnar nerve is kind of a preferred neuromuscular monitoring site, right? Because if you're, if you're fully reversed, uh, if, you're, if you're measuring reversal at the hand, then you can assume that the laryngeal muscle and the diaphragm are reversed. Do reversal in the hand with actual reversal quantitatively? Oh, next point. Four out of four twitches is suggestive of adequate neuromuscular function oh, and recovery from lucky. Is that really a myth? Do you work in these operating rooms? Because I hear that all the time. I'd be like, did you give that patient reversal? I'd be like, no, 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 he's got four twitches. <laughs> no, guys, anybody? You guys work in the operating room, right? Four out of four twitches is suggestive of adequate neuromuscular function and recovery from blockade. Big myth. Big myth. A patient with four out of four twitches may have up to 75% neuromuscular block. They're not going anywhere. Sustained tetany at 50 or 100 hertz for 5 seconds, 5 second head lift or inspiratory pressure of at least negative 25 tor. Indicate, indicates adequate, and here's a good point for you all, adequate but not necessarily complete recovery from neuromuscular blockade, right? 
even when patients have the, the gold standard five-second head lift or what we take as a, as a, as a, as a ulterior in the unconscious patient, the sustained tetany at 50 or 100 hertz for five seconds, we say that that correlates with adequate muscle reversal for extubation in general, but that doesn't mean complete muscle reversal. Just a thing. Right. But a patient with five-second head lift could be expected to, you know, hold their sats and maintain their sats on their own when extubated. In general, what else do you want them to do? Tap dance out of the room for you? <laughs> Typically, patients who receive non-depolarizing muscle relaxants should be reversed. The empiric reversal question. Yeah, so... Yeah, so it's like, but I just gave him 50 rock. It was like two and a half hours ago. Should I reverse him? Yeah, the books say yes. A reversal agent should be routinely given to patients who receive non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. Less full reversal can be demonstrated, or the post-operative plan includes continued intubation and ventilation. Neostigmy could make it poo, by the way. So could uh, carboprostol. Allergies to local anesthetics are common. Myth. True hypersensitivity reactions to local anesthetics are quite uncommon. Um, people are allergic to paramino benzoic acid, though, right? Which is uh, either found in the degradation of Novocaine or as a preservative in, um, in other local anesthetics. General anesthesia decreases FRC. These are things that have come, these are things that come my way in the OR all the time. General anesthesia decreases FRC. Fact or myth? That's a fact. Induction of anesthesia consistently produces an additional 15 to 20% reduction in FRC. Muscle relaxation, you know, uh, does not further increase, uh, further decrease FRC over general anesthesia. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Without, it doesn't matter. The induction of general anesthesia decreases your FRC uh, in, the, um, in the supine position. If you were sitting and anesthetized, whether intubated or not, if you were in the sitting position, your FRC is not decreased. Sort of. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's in the middle too, but the language is a little easier to copy and paste. Yeah. Yeah, because I can get it on the MD consult, so I cut and paste it. But yes, yeah, it's, it's in the middle too. Paraplegic patients with lesions above T6 can have lower body surgical interventions, i.e. cystoscopy and childbirth, without anesthesia. Amen. Big fat myth, right? The whole autonomic hyperreflexia thing. But um, don't think you, can't, you won't find yourself in situations where people don't know this, right? And they say, oh, this guy was in a motorcycle accident. I'm just going to take him back to Cisto. I don't need anesthesia for it. That is a real-world occurrence, okay? I promise you, you will eventually get involved in that case, okay? But in a way that, you know, you won't be happy with when you're begging the pharmacy to tube down trimethophan and to brush the cobwebs off of it. Donor-directed blood transfusions are safer than banked blood. This is something that comes up from patients all the time, right? The patients are like, I, wanna, I want my dad to donate blood to me before the surgery because it's safer, because he's not you know, frequenting prostitutes and all this, right? Donor-directed blood, that is a big old myth. There is, uh, every study that they've done on this either shows there's no difference in safety between donor-directed units and bank blood or that blood bank units are actually safer 
keep in mind that when you tell dad to donate blood to you before surgery, dad's not exactly going to take that moment to fess up about his secret life, is he, okay? The transmission of diseases is higher in, don in all seriousness, whereas if he goes to uh, the, the Red Cross, he may. This is true. When studies have been done to show this, they say that bank blood is occasionally, is, uh, the donated blood can be more dangerous. Forearm supination is the preferred position for anesthetized patients. We're taping down arms every day. That's a fact, and this is why. Right? Pronated arm traps the ulnar nerve between the electronic process and the bed. What do you got? You have to keep it in patient's initial awakening. That's the actual test. Not everybody has to be supine and supinated. I got one more and we'll wrap this one up, okay? There is evidence, because this is something I get from our, our colleagues in the operating room all the time, right? There is evidence that breathing trace amounts of anesthetic gas in the OR poses hazards to OR personnel. Yeah, don't, don't go for the end, please. Uh, there's no evidence, by the way. All right, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. I hope today was, uh, was a little bit of fun. Sufficiently, sufficiently to say, everyone can see, there's a lot of controversy in our practices, even amongst each other and ourselves. I urge you all, as you're practicing anesthesia out there, to you know, try and ask yourself why we're doing what we're doing. See if it's well-founded in good science and good anesthetic practice. And um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe start inquiring, as I've started to, about your own practices and seeing, you know, which are good and um, which you just take on faith uh, without much, uh, you know, without much to it. Dr. Oppenten. Thank you.